This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hello, everybody, traders at all, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, and I'm joined by Dan Hodgman. Dan, how you doing? Jack, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Uh, I understand that it is boiling hot outside. I just walked seven blocks into the office, and I'm dying. It's so hot, and it's only going to get worse, apparently. Yeah, I have one of those uh, short-nosed dogs that uh, we have sort of on life support, just keeping them inside, <laughs> keeping them cool. Kind of like the Georgia. towels to take them outside. Those, yeah, you see those uh, Georgia football games where they have the dog in the little ice house? Oh, yep. yeah. <laughs> well, so we'll try and cool you guys all down out there with, uh, you know, because we got Dan Hodgman. We'll call it a hodgepodge episode today. I like we're that. We're going to talk a little bit about Tesla. Everyone likes to talk Tesla. We talk a little bit about uh, the hot and maybe not so hot summer trades that go down. Summer trading is a little different. And then uh, Dan's been on a little bit of a heater we don't want to jinx. So we were going to kind of talk <laughs> through some of his uh, trades he's been making in the uh, Back to the Futures market. So, uh, yeah, we've talked about the weather. That's a good way to start anything. So why don't we just jump right into it? I'm going to look at my chart right now. I see, oh, Tesla is trading at 1410 right now. I can't get over this. Yeah. I, I can't. I it was at 1100 the other day. I got a call from my buddy and he goes, should we just throw everything we have in Tesla? And I go, I said to him, I go, I want, I, when it was down at 350, I was interested. My dad used to tell me, this was like a couple of years ago, anytime Tesla dipped below 300, just buy as much as you can. So he's done that. Here I am looking like an idiot, not doing that. But it was down at 350, I wanted to buy, but I was like, man, I just don't know how much higher it can go. Then it gets up to 850, thinking to myself, I should buy it, but I don't know how much higher it can go. Then it's at 1100. My buddy says, should we just throw everything we have at it? And my comment goes, every time I've wanted to buy it, I didn't think it could go any higher and boom, it pops right there. So I just shouldn't buy it. I shouldn't touch it. And um, I'm baffled by this stock. I have a million thoughts on this. and um. I think an important caveat, and I I don't know if you're this way too, but when it comes to Tesla, I'm not a uh, zealot one way or the other. Right. I I neither think that it's going to be the largest company in the world in six months, or that it's a scam that's going to go bankrupt. It's a it's a company and business plan that I believe in to some extent, um, and I think a lot of people do too. I think it is and can be a really good company now. What makes it unique is that it kind of uh, straddles that Steve Jobsian razor's edge between uh, security and cult. Yes. And part of the reason, so I, I want to talk a couple reasons that you would see something go parabolic like this and people are still in it. You just, you don't see prices generally explode in this. There really wasn't any news besides Elon's tweet about the short shorts or whatever, and they beat yeah. deliveries a little bit. <laughs> it wasn't like they, uh, you know, announced they developed cold fusion or something. <laughs> well, I think I, I really put a lot of faith in that people are not just buying Tesla, but I think they're kind of coming at it like I'm, I'm investing in Elon Musk. 
and I'm investing in SpaceX. Like I think there's a correlation there that, yeah, your money's not actually in SpaceX. And if SpaceX goes public on its own IPO, then you're going to see Tesla kind of drop and fall off the face of the earth a little bit. But personal opinion there, I think, but I think a lot of people, when we're investing in something like Tesla, you're investing in Elon. That's where it goes. And he said it himself. He goes, if, if you're not ready for some volatile markets and ready to take some big swings in the stock, he goes, then don't buy Tesla because that's what's going to happen. And I can appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate vision. I appreciate uh, people making things too. I've had a lot of issues with how much every unicorn company and source stock we talk about has all just been platforms for other things to create. We've completely moved away from the concept of making the next cool thing. And all these companies that have exploded in sort of the from 2010 on um, platform driven thing. Think about Uber or um, Airbnb. They're just unlocking the value that's already there in your car or your house. I don't see how that's going to take us to sort of the next level as far as creating value for the economy. Yeah, I mean we got more efficient at getting rides and stuff, but I don't, I don't find it revolutionary. I don't think it is. I mean, when we start talking about batteries, better batteries, cause I've heard it described as the reason people bid it up so much is because it's a battery company, not a car company. When we talk about things like having the next generation batteries or having completely autonomous vehicles, those sorts of things are revolutionary. They can completely change the way that we live, supply chains, everything else. Absolutely. Well, you think about it. You make you make a great point. They are a battery company that's building cars. Their their platform is a battery, and they're finding different places to utilize that battery. Whether it's semi trucks, um, you know, little race cars, you name it. They're creating these products, and now they have some goofy shorts out there. I think um, that they're selling. Yeah, the car is just the best way to showcase the battery technology. So It is. Before I get into a few things that I worry about, I think that this is a good lesson for all markets because the reason it's going parabolic really comes back to the, you know, don't think about valuations at all when you're actually trading, maybe for the long term or things like that. It's basically, can a buyer and seller agree at a price? And I think what's driving allows Tesla to go so much higher than uh, a lot of these other companies is that people are such zealots about it. You know, Musk himself owns a lot of the shares. A lot of these funds that are built around sort of those ideas and Musk own shares. And then there's tons of uh, people out there. It, it reminds me of Bitcoin, which eventually crashed in a way where <laughs> the people, it goes up to insane prices because one, no one's willing to sell it at any price. You know, we talked with Kevin, who works in our office. I was talking to him about this other day, and he's a big, uh, I want to stop saying zealot because that has negative connotations, but just a Tesla Uber believer where they're just like, they wouldn't sell it for $5,000 today. And he claims to have discounted the cash flows and stuff. That seems a little bit like voodoo to me at this point. Right. But so there's not a lot of people willing to sell uh, their shares. And then on the other side, because the stock's so volatile and has gone up so much, People are afraid to short it. And there's been so many squeezes along the way. I think last time there was a big, you know, short squeeze or something, there was like 45. This was like either 2018, 2019. There was 45 million shares short. 
that's coming down. I think there's only maybe 10 or 15 million right now, especially after this latest squeeze. So when you have buyers that won't sell and you have shorts that won't go in on it, what you get are these sort of low volume drifts higher and higher out of, I don't know, the FOMO trade. People have to include it. People buy more. I don't know who's buying it on this day right now. Well, I think what we're seeing, I think you're spot on. People that have the stock don't want to give it up. There's no justification when I were to look at that chart, when I were to look at that company, you know, they just, they beat expectations for Q2. Like with everything going on, the last thing I would want to do as a holder of that stock is dump it. Like that's an investment to me. I got to hold on to this thing for a while. I agree. But the classic conundrum is now at a market value of over like 260 billion, Tesla is the 15th largest company, a US company. Now, Dan, it's the largest car manufacturer in the world. It's bigger than Disney. Now, you know, (laughs) famous car maker. I'll ask you this, Dan. They are the uh, 15th biggest company, US company. And they are on the NASDAQ. Why are they not listed on the S&P 500? There is an answer. And it gets to sort of the uh, issue with the pricing right now. So it's got to be something along the lines. It's not just going to be based off market cap. Like we all know it's an overvalued stock. I don't know. Give me the, give me the, give me the truth. So Dan, to be included on the S&P 500, you have to have positive earnings over a year. (laughs) I thought they did. They have three quarters. And that's part of the reason why he like Musk was going to war almost about the manufacturing because they had just assembled three quarters of earnings. And at this next earnings part, this is another reason it's going up right now is because it's almost assured that they'll have positive earnings. Uh, I think they report on July 22nd. And once they do that, they'll be included in the S&P 500. Okay. All right. That makes sense. For some reason, I thought we were on, I thought we were over a year of positive earnings with them. So I was thinking something based off of market cap, like how realistic is it? You know, I talked to a guy the other day who's um, up there in um, Toyota and I asked him what they thought about Tesla. And they're like, market cap doesn't mean anything to us. We're not going to let them bother us. Um, But I think where I stand, I look at that company and I want to own as much of my Elon Musk stock as I possibly can. I'm in, so intrigued on that, man. He's created something that's so different. And like you said, there's this concept out there of like innovating with what we have and then sparking something new. Steve Jobs was the king at this. The cell phone that had no buttons. Like, that makes no sense. If you have a phone, you got to have your dial pad. You have to have all your numbers. And Steve Jobs comes out and says, no, we're not going to have that. It's just going to be a screen and you're going to touch it. And that turned into what the biggest phone in the entire world. Elon Musk is doing that right now with cars. Elon and Steve Jobs are both visionaries. And I'm not, this is not meant to be a detraction. What I'm saying on either of these, they're both visionaries of marketing and Steve Jobs, more marketing and design. But you build this reputation as you know, a Lex Luthor style genius. I mean, Steve Jobs was a marketer. He wasn't a computer genius like True. you know Wozniak was. In the same way as we don't talk about this enough, Elon Musk is a genius, but he's also not a rocket scientist or the guy 
developing that he's he's more of this he's a marketer man but isn't he like isn't he the rocket scientist behind what it, like the scientist behind a lot of the stuff the technology they've done or is he so. just the money no he's a combination he's very smart he's a money he's a coder he built paypal but i don't yeah, he built I, paypal but he's not a he's not a he knows far more than say you know someone well versed in it but he's basically okay. he's not inventing uh for some reason i thought he had uh and rockets um yeah for some reason i thought he had like he was some of the science behind that maybe i'm just wishful thinking if he is, i don't know what, what is his education i'll look it up right now well we, we can go into that i guess the one thing before we move on from tesla i think that there is a huge bull case long term if you if you see them as a battery company because anything in right now as a as a world we have shitty batteries and the uh ramifications if we were to improve our battery technology are unbelievable the things we could do as far as that's one of the big things holding uh, renewable energies back of how you can transport solar and stuff like that mm-hmm. um just the power you could have in portable devices the distance on cars, self-driving vehicle. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. And I'm sure someone that was more into that could give me more things they could do. Um, what I worry about that I, I don't hear enough people talking about is that when you get into some of these high-tech things, part of the reason we've, we've had a platform revolution, I think, is because some of the things we want to do in sort of the quantum computing or advanced batteries, fusion energy are reaching sort of physical bounds that we don't necessarily know if it's possible to do, right? I took a seminar my freshman year of college 15 years ago where they were talking about, it was with like a CERN engineer. And she was telling us that, you know, she was all in on fusion energy and we're going to have it within 50 years, she promises. Well, it's 15 years later and I believe it's still 50 years or more away from that. Not any closer. So... That stuff doesn't concern me from a investor standpoint. Like that's not something that's going to affect my portfolio in the next five years. I'll tell you what could though, is what if another thing I've heard about this is that there's a similar thing that goes on with batteries is there's a real trouble. And this is the reason no one's done it is that it's really, 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 really hard to develop better batteries. And there is some question, though essentially this stock is valued and has been promised, it's can they do that? And if they can, Tesla to the moon, 10,000, whatever. Absolutely. Well, so there's a concept when it comes to technology. They're solid state devices now, which is what they're doing with these batteries. And so part of an old job I used to have is we used to work on all sorts of different technologies. And one of them was a solid state device and the capabilities and, and the possibilities that you can reach with these solid state devices, which I know is what they're talking about with batteries and they're going those routes and, you know, we're not liquid based batteries much anymore. You know, it's very rare if you have to go get a new battery that you're getting an acid pack with it and then you're, you're filling the cells with acid. That's not nearly as common these days. And batteries are going from, you know, you keep it really simple. I'm a boater. We replace you. We used to replace our battery every three years. Now we're at like every seven or eight years. So we're making huge progress and leaps forward and moving into solid state. And I think if what Tesla has done, and this is the big thing, they're creating value of a used battery, which has never been done in my, I don't think it's ever been out there. Yeah, we've had electric cars in the past, which are big money right now because people are so interested in it. But 
you can go out and buy a brand new Tesla for $100,000. You can go out and buy an eight-year-old Tesla for $50,000. So you're buying an eight-year-old battery because that's the foundation. You're paying $50,000 for this and you're expecting to get good life and longevity out of these batteries. I think it's pretty spectacular with what he's done with this technology. He's made it reusable. And I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of his. I'm, he keeps me so intrigued watching anytime he has to get up and public speak. There's always something interesting that comes out. And like you said, he's a marketer, you know, the hat that he created years ago, he would sell that extra, that company, it's the boring company or something like that. Yeah. The, the, the drilling company. Yeah. Who's selling hats for a hundred dollars. I mean, the man's a genius. And when I buy into Tesla, I think I'm looking at, I'm investing in Elon Musk, not so much Tesla. Yeah. Well, we'll close that with my thought is he's a genius. I do love what he's doing. I think we see 1200 before we see 1600. That'll be my call on 1200 before 1600. It's at 1402 right now. We were literally at 1200 like three days ago. That, that's what I'm thinking. I think we closed those gaps back down. That would, that would still be a huge run-up. So, right. uh, yeah, speaking of trade ideas, I thought we could transition now into, we'll kind of do a joint uh, conversation about sort of the summer trade we're entering into, and then uh, we can talk about some of the summer trades you've made um, along the way and kind of what you're looking at. So Absolutely. we've done an episode about this in the past where Hogue was on, and I don't know where everybody is on your trading journeys. But generally, there's sort of a seasonal flow to uh, volatility and the way markets move, and the summers are usually slow. Now, this summer is quite likely to be a little different because um, if you haven't noticed, there's a worldwide pandemic, 11% unemployment. Uh, what else? Uh, elections. Elections. Uh, uh, global unrest. Unrest since the, since the civil rights movement. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. And uh, that could keep people busy. So usually we would say, you know, well, Dan, you're good at this. What's your usual spiel for uh, your description of sort of summer trade and how you should approach it? So I, I take a different approach. Yeah, 10 years ago when trading was still floor-based, human-based, um, summer trade was dead. You know, my dad for 30 years took August off. Like he just took a full month off of work because – their trading was so slow. Um, but with the introduction of computers, yeah, we're going to see lull periods. And when I say lull periods, we're going to see Fridays and Mondays are going to be slow. But we're going to have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that's still going to be solid trading. There's still going to be opportunity within those days. I think about it as like we just need to, when summer comes around, you need to shorten your hours. Your trading opens. You're trading a couple hours a day. And you're really not trading much on Mondays and Fridays. Um, whereas it used to be summer trade was, hey, it's just going to walk sideways. There's really not going to be any volatility. Markets are going to be kind of dead. You're going to see volume start to slump off. Um, this year is going to be a whole different year. And that's, I feel like that's been a common thing. Like this summer is going to be different. I feel like I've been saying that for six or seven years now. Like this summer is going to be different. There's something happening. Um, and now I feel like summers now are different than they were 10, 15 years ago. Now summer is like, all right, there's going to be opportunity, there's going to be volatility, and uh, we're going to have shortened hours. Trade the shortened hours, take take some relaxation time for yourself. 
Yeah. And while we say that, certainly this one's going to be different compared to, I don't know what we would have said. I'd have to go back and play the tape from 2019. Right. But uh, what, what was the VIX around then? 12? <laughs> Something like that? Or Well, know. no, because we had just, we were in the process of making all-time highs. There was still like the fear of what happened on December 24th. That is correct. The old Christmas massacre there. And we did have stuff going on last summer. Um, Brexit was a big deal. Brexit was going on. Yeah, it looks uh, like through last summer, we were hanging around. We had a few spikes above 20 in the VIX with a low of, hey, Jackie P, 12 in August. But yeah, you're right. It was usually closer between 15 and 20, something like that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the super low volume we see. But I think it's important in general to always... You got to have your eye on that volume if you're going to trade anything, not just get concerned in solely the price action. I mean, absolutely. Those thin markets are a whole different animal. Absolutely. And they trade different. And we have to keep in mind if they start to thin up, why are they thinning up? Well, number one, you know, people are shutting off their, their computer systems. Those are those HFTs, the high frequency trading computers. They are a lot of the volume that we see every day. Um, you have to start thinking about time of day. What time is it? Hey, if it's a Friday after 11 o'clock, chances are the big money institutional guys, they're gone for the weekend. They have taken off to the Hamptons. They've taken off to their lake houses, wherever they are. Um, and that's the stuff we have to keep in mind. And like I've always said, if the pros aren't trading, why should I be trading? Right. You have to think if there's no one else trading this, why? There's got to be some reason, right? Right. We have to ask ourselves, why is volume down? Why is the liquidity thinning up? Why is this happening? Okay, what time of day is it? Are we approaching into a holiday? Is the weather gorgeous in southeastern Wisconsin and and over in the Hamptons that like all the big time players are gone? Oh, yeah, you know what? It's probably 92 degrees, sunny. They've all taken off early to get that out of here. I mean, those are things we have to keep in mind. Nice. Well, that being said, uh, why don't we dive a little bit into some of the... uh trades you've been making lately. Um, so my understanding is that you mostly trade uh, ES futures? Yeah. That's where I've been for the last year, year and a half. I found some proprietary um, setups for myself based off of volume and time-based. Um, and I've been finding some great opportunity within this market. I've enjoyed the buy side. I've traded S&Ps now for probably... 10 years, give or take. Um, so S&Ps are probably one of my more active. Um, lately, I've been trading gold a little bit as well. So I'll ask some questions just so the people listening out there can get an idea. So what sort of time frames are you looking at when you're framing out a trade? Um, so I start with, um, well, it depends on, depends on the day. Um, if it's a Monday, the first thing I'm doing is looking at weekly charts. Like where has it been over the last couple of weeks? Like where... Are we approaching specific weeks that I saw high volume in the past? Um, and then I start to break it down to a daily. Um, and then throughout the day, I'm watching a daily four hour, hour and 30 minute chart. Yeah, those are pretty common. And we mm-hmm. usually, I, I think I've usually recommended using at least four time periods. If you're looking at too short a time frame, it's easy to lose the bigger picture. And that those are where the big levels are that people are looking at. You know, they're not Absolutely. on the one minute chart. You're not seeing anything. You you get lost and you get lost. You can think if you're looking at a five minute chart, first off, no one's got a screen big enough to have a five minute chart that looked back 
you know, a week to get an idea of where it's been over the last week. And so you get lost in, you know, you might be looking at, I don't know, take, take S and P's. It's a trend up market right now. It keeps extending higher and you might get lost thinking, man, look at this downtrend. Oh man, we got to take the short side here. And it's been hard to think about any single short in a long time in this S and P's. Yeah. Well, I found some success. I uh, am a little bit more pessimistic in the market. I found some success just going short, but very selectively. So I certainly am not conviction shorting anything right. for a long term because that would be against the trend, right? For sure. Like I take shorts and and that's, I think, what's big for me is I had a conversation with the trader recently. I was telling him about this because he was asking me how I do it. And we were looking at his trades. And for me, every trade I go into, like I have a time frame that says, all right, I need to be within, be up to my target, or this move needs to break through within X amount of time. Every trade is going to be totally different. Like, obviously, if I'm trying to catch a long trend, I'll be willing to sit in that trade to the close through the week over a couple of weeks. Like, I do manage positions over a couple of weeks every so often. But for me, everything's time based. So, if I'm entering into a short, chances are I'm looking for that fast move down. Hey, we've just hit like I'm so when I sit down to trade every day, I look back, I run my levels, I get an idea of where my ranges are. Once I have an idea of my range, I'll stay within that range. If it's a trending up range, if it's a sideways range, if it's a trend down range, I am defining my range and I'm saying I'm staying within this and I'm gonna kind of fade these extremes no matter what the direction is. Um and I focus on that. Like my bias goes out of it completely. And for the extremes, uh, you rely on the uh, volume profile, right? Um, I mean, I keep an eye on volume profile. Um, I watch it. I'm bigger. Just I used to work with a statistician um, for years, and he taught me how he looks at the markets. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it's volume. A lot of it's time spent at those prices, too. So even if volume's not huge, but there's good time spent, I'm paying attention to that. To me, that's really important because it overnight sessions, yeah, volume's not huge, but we we constantly see overnight levels come back into play. Market hits there and stops. So people are still looking at that. And so volume, huge role in my trading, but also time spent is a huge role in my trading. I, I like what you're saying about the time spent. I think that's a underappreciated sort of parameter on your trades. Every beginning trader, you start with knowing, you know, where to where you're going to take profit and what your stop loss is. And those are price based things. But I think at the same time, you need to be cognizant of the time, too. And in some ways, it's even harder. you got to have sort of almost a time puke in your head or at least a time where you're going to reevaluate to make sure that you're still cool with it. You know, if you hold a trade long enough, the conditions may change. There may be other things going on. Almost certainly there are. And you may need to reevaluate what you're doing with this position. I know that's right. something that would get me into a lot of trouble because we were trading um, more sticky positions to get out of that. There was it, it was sort of turning around a, a big boat or something where you had a lot of parts to it. And the, the, there was no way just to scratch a trade. It would take a lot of effort to get out of the trade. So that incentivized you or incentivized you in a negative way 
to kind of hold and just hope just it works out, through. just power through it. And that's not smart. The best people that I saw, they didn't like something. They just got out. Right. So that's something that I have relished in kind of being trading for myself, being a smaller retail guy. I'm not trading massive positions. Like I do put size on every so often and size is based off of over time, like over time. So like, don't get me wrong. Do I like scaling into long-term equity positions? Absolutely. Am I hedged? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But like, I'll build them up and like, I'm not getting so big where when I was at the prop firm, like our size was so big. You can't, you're right. It's like turning a, a cruise ship around. It's it's a mega tanker. You're trying to turn around. You've got these huge positions. It's not like you can just hit that exit all button. No, because you had a bunch of options and because you were trading options. And I was trading futures. options. And so we're, we're carrying a, we're carrying a position of probably 5,000 options, 550 bonds per person, you know, which we were, it was still small compared to some of the big guys. Um, but like rollover for when the bonds rolled over, I mean, it would take us three weeks to get our positions rolled from just the future side. We were usually out of our options every month. Um, we stayed only, we only traded the monthly. Uh, we traded two to three months out. And yeah, we're huge positions. And for sure, there are trades that we'll put on that just instantly go against. And it's like, okay, can I quick get out of this hundred lot of, it puts that I just sold. All right. Yeah, I can get out of that. Okay, cool. Perfect. But if you can't get out of it, then your job becomes, all right, how do I manage this? How do I make money with this? And what I've grown to love about this futures retail private trading, first off, I don't have quotas I have to hit every month. I don't mm -hmm. have someone saying, hey, Dan, you know, you didn't hit your monthly, your monthly total. Um, we, we need a bigger month out of you. I don't have that. And I also have this button in my charting that is exit all and exit and cancel all orders. Like that's become my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> have, have I talked about that? Just made me think of something. Have I talked about my doomsday doomsday button on the uh, podcast? I before? think you've told me about it. I don't know if it was on the podcast, so let's go into it. Okay. Yeah. When I, when I worked at the prop shop, I had a, uh, I had a spreader open with a doomsday button that if something, uh, if the uh, S really hit the fan, so to speak, uh, you know, the, 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 if the bombs are flying, I could just hit this button and it, it would launch a absurd uh, <laughs> position through the market. <laughs> I never got to press it. Um, eventually, it became sort of a uh, risk management issue that it could get hit. So that's not something I recommend to traders. What I would recommend instead is just, could, you know, the nice thing about the smaller retail size is you can always generally get out of your position within a fraction of a point or whatever, you know, a right. tick or something like that. Unless, you, you know, nobody's trading with us is trading more than 10 contracts, I guess, at the most at any time. Right. And that's kind of where I'm at right now is I'm keeping it smaller. Yeah. Some of us are looking, ranges have seemed to have tightened up just a little bit, but I still have like that tingly feeling that this, these moves aren't over, that our ranges are going to open back up. And so right now, trading small is the best thing we can do. And, you know, even for me, I'm trading less. I've been trading a lot less over the last three months, eh, probably last four or five months. I'm making more. I'm finding better opportunities. And the nicest thing is, like, I'm, I don't like executing a lot. I don't like hitting the buy and sell a lot. Like, I want to get in 
and sit on it for a while and then I'll get out and then I'm done. Like for me, an average day is maybe one, two trades and an average week I'm maybe five or six trades. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And I think it's a lot of people talk about wanting their end goal being to trade as a living. And I think that's a noble goal. I think you have to think sometimes about the even once you reach that, one of the most difficult parts about being a full-time trader is that it suddenly becomes something that you have to do and you have to produce at. You know, when Dan was talking about quotas, you know, we didn't have quotas, but we had uh, desk fees and we got paid entirely in bonus. You know, our the base salary, salary packages are very small when you're working in a trading firm. So there was this constant pressure to succeed because if you didn't, you had to be looking for a new job. So that's something definitely to think about. I kind of like being able, I I like trading, but I like to do it when I want to do it as opposed to when I have to do it. Right. That's exactly where I'm at these days. I walked away from it just because of the exhaustion, Um, not sleeping very often, Um, sleeping on the couch. Um, We took a big heater uh, right before I left and it was, uh, it was enough to, you know, make you want to take a break. And now what I've really just found true passion in is I love finding my love. Like I love the prep. I love prepping. I'm up every morning between five, five thirty, and I'm at my desk prepping my levels to me. Like that's the funnest thing in the world to do is prep my levels. And if the market comes to one of my levels, there's no hesitation for execution. Like, Oh, I'm at Great. I love it. 3065. It's a level I've looked at for the last like week and a half, two weeks or so. Love 3065. Done. Anytime we get there, I'm looking to do something. And to me, that's what I've become so passionate about is like execution based off of my research. Yeah. I mean, it's great to find joy in something. I, I similarly, I, I, I left because of, of sort of like a combination of exhaustion, sort of stress on relationships with people. Because a lot like when you're trading full time in like a prop shop or something, it's hard to interact with people that aren't. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of stress when, you know, the futures markets are open 23 hours a day. I also took a big uh, grinding several month heater that was all (laughs) that frankly was a trade i would have never been in if i didn't feel the overwhelming pressure to have to make a bunch of money or lose my job Mm -hmm. and i would i i would like to think that that's something i would not do today i would be like this is stupid um you know just do the things you want to do so I think that there are ways it takes a lot of practice and training and doing your homework to become a good trader. But just because you do all that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be full time every day. Cause I think that brings its own issues. That's, and that's been my biggest point. So as you guys all know, I grew up in this, I've been around this since I was a little kid. My, obviously my mentor is my dad and he always said, the reason he was successful at trading is because he was always in the pit. He was always there and he never ended up missing a trade. Keep in mind, his pit hours were 7.20 to 2 p.m. So still shortened hours. When I hear people talking to me, now for me, I, I don't even spend that much time trading. I can't watch it because you get lost within the tape. So if you were in the pit, 
you knew when trade was happening and trade wasn't. And obviously every decision, you know, every market move based off the bond future, we were in the pit and we were going, okay, there's no actual trade coming here. This is just some fluff, like ignore this move. This is nothing. Um, And so you kind of get that feeling of when there's real trade. And I think when we look at the screen, we get lost in the fact that, oh my gosh, it's moving. I have to be in. But is it really moving? Is there really volume coming in? Is there really actual trade here? Or is this just people are pulling some orders out, some algos are clicking on, you know, picking up some small longs because they saw some offers come out. They love it. They know it's going to run, bump up, you know, five, 10 points. Yeah. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. And so for me, the biggest thing I've stressed to a lot of traders now is number one, you're trading for freedom. If you want to make this a full-time job, make this a part-time job that pays your full-time bills is how I look at it. Like, Don't ever let the charts and the computer become that ball and chain. Don't ever let it suck you in 24-7. We trade for freedom. I trade to support a lifestyle and I want to enjoy my time instead of sitting here at five o'clock on the open. No, I could care less. If I'm not in a position, I'm not paying attention. Yeah. Trade the hours, you know, there's going to be opportunity. Yeah. Well, I think that's a a good piece of advice to kind of end on. So uh, thank you for listening to that limit up interview with (laughs) us. So uh, yeah, it's Thursday. It's about time to kick off the weekend. It's probably, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, at least pretty hot where you are. So uh, I'm going camping this weekend, Dan. What about you? Uh, my sister, her husband, and my niece are coming into town, so uh, we had a family weekend. I'm That's great. Just like every weekend, out on the water, on the boat. <laughs> That's great. My advice to everyone out there, just uh, drink a bunch of water. Cause Hydrate. As Rob Thomas would call it, a hot one. If you got that <laughs> reference, uh, good. If not, you know, send an email to complain. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to the Limit Up podcast, presented by Top Step Trader. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Maybe we'll have a guest and maybe we won't. But uh, if we don't, we'll talk about another topic sort of like Tesla today, something that's hot in the markets, so to speak. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, there you go. Way to bring it back. I know. I did it. So uh, anyway, have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Namaste and trade well. The Limit Up podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.